One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Murder Mile. A true crime podcast, an audio guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about a fire in an old building fitted with modern innovations to ensure its workers' safety. And although everyone should have survived, it was the old fashioned attitude towards one particular group of workers which led to 10 unnecessary deaths. Murder Miley's research used in authentic sources. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 153, GEC and the Fourth Floor Girls. Today, I'm standing on Queen Victoria Street by St Paul's Cathedral. The furthest east we've been so far, being two streets northeast of the hanging of God's banker, Roberto Calvi. Situated by Mansion House Tube, sits the busy intersection between Cannon Street and Queen Victoria Street. It's a dull, vague space with little to see, so you're more likely to pass through it than to stop. Like most junctions, it's dotted with every conceivable safety measure to ensure you're less likely to be hurt, having not paid the basic level of attention for doing something as simple as walking. Therefore, there's signs which say, stop, go, slow, no stop, no go, no slow, exit, entry, one way, no way, and naff off. There's handrails to hold, footprints to follow, bollards at a good height to rest your bollocks on, and even a flashing green man to show you when to walk, and for the real thickies, how to walk. It may seem like overkill, but what we often forget is that before laws are changed, it usually takes a tragic accident to happen first. Pedestrian crossings and speed cameras are often as a result of a loss of life, being a grim memorial to the dead and the price we pay for progress. 
At 67 Queen Victoria Street sits a five-story building. The original has long since been demolished, but the third and fourth floors were once owned by GEC, the General Electric Company, an innovative maker of electrical devices like fire alarms, who prided themselves on the safety of its workers. So when a fire broke out on the second floor, everyone should have survived. Only they didn't. As it was here, on Monday the 9th of June 1902, that although the company's methods were modern, their old-fashioned attitude towards the fourth-floor girls led to ten easily avoidable deaths. The final years of the Victorian era saw many innovations we take for granted today. Beginning with the first electric light invented by Joseph Swan in 1878, the first electric iron by Henry Seeley in 1882, the electric fuse by Thomas Edison in 1890, the first electric kettle by Arthur Leslie Large in 1891, and the first transmission of radio waves in 1901 with many more modern innovations to swiftly follow. Electricity heralded a new era of innovation. But with Britain's power supply still a quarter of a century away from being standardised and nationalised, by 1901, even Buckingham Palace had only been illuminated by electricity for the last 13 years. But it would come to the masses. One such company ahead of the curve was GEC, the General Electric Company. Established by German immigrant Gustav Binswanger, G. Binswanger & Co. was already a successful electrical goods wholesaler when in 1886 he partnered up with entrepreneurial salesman Hugo Hurst. The General Electric Company was formed and built its head office at 67 Queen Victoria Street. Innovations in electricity was progressing at a previously unparalleled rate. But electricity was dangerous. As a single spark could ignite a devastating fire, especially in a city like London, with so many old buildings constructed out of flammable materials. As a stark reminder, GEC was just half a mile from Pudding Lane, the epicentre of the 1666 Great Fire of London. It takes an event of such devastation to change laws. And although the Blitz helped form today's modern fire brigade, between both of those events, very little innovation had been made to prevent or control fire. It was said, firemen are asked to fight 20th century perils with 19th century machinery. As modern methods of construction meant the buildings grew ever taller, 
the outdated appliances that fire crews used remained the same. The ineffective Factory and Workshop Act of 1895 had left the installation and regulation of safety equipment to the companies themselves. And until 1938 and the creation of the Auxiliary Fire Service, fire crews were privately owned, many by insurance companies. Therefore, the fire crew's job wasn't to protect lives, but to protect buildings and its contents. GEC was a modern company who were better prepared to defend against fire than most businesses in that era. Proudly proclaiming to be the makers of all things electric, GEC was one of the first buildings in London to be fitted with a fire alarm. They had brake glass buttons on every floor and stairwell. They had heavy iron fire doors between each building. The staff conducted fire drills on a weekly basis. They had their own fire hoses connected to an endless stream of water being just two streets from the River Thames. And just 100 feet away was their own fire brigade. If a fire were to break out at 67 Queen Victoria Street, everyone should survive. But not every worker at GEC was treated as equally as the others. The day was Monday the 9th of June 1902 and the weather was bright with very little wind. As just before 8am, a flank of workers exited the Metropolitan District Railway at Mansion House Station. For the execs and admin staff, the location was perfect, as this half-block-wide building was also the train's terminus. But for those less well-paid workers, like the assembly girls on the fourth floor, many would arrive by public omnibus or by foot, dressed in a neat pinafore, with their sandwiches wrapped in a cloth rag. The ground, first and second floors were occupied by Messrs Murdoch nephews, a purveyor of fancy goods, the kind of frivolous, non-essential trinkets used to make a modern home look nice. With an enclosed central stairwell leading to the top two floors, which were owned by GEC. Being typically hierarchical, execs and admin were on the third floor, with manual workers on the fourth. Each floor was split, with seniors sat by the windows and juniors stuck in the shadows. This was not uncommon, as being in keeping with a very Victorian class system. Separate bathrooms, eating areas and even entrance doors ensured that those deemed important weren't sullied by less vital staff. Only workers wouldn't have time to worry about things as trivial as equality, as with King Edward VII's coronation just two weeks away, GEC had to finish an order of electric street decorations. Desperate for cheap labour, they hired the poor, 
the young, and of course, females. Hidden away on the top floor was the workroom, where GEC's products were assembled and packed. In the middle, a large spiral staircase split the room in half, with the men sat separately. As being staff, both their sex and seniority afforded them a better place to sit, beside the wood-burning stove. Whereas the thirteen young girls sat at a long bench, silently assembling the light's floral wreaths. That day, though, there was only one man on the floor, David Everson, who managed the thirteen girls. Around the bench included 18-year-olds Violet Hodgson of Peckham and Florence Amor of Forest Gate, 17-year-old Mabel Amos of Clapham, 16-year-olds Mabel Garrett of Camberwell and Lily Mantle of Brixton, 15-year-olds Jesse Hasty of Camberwell and Ada Steele of East Ham, and fresh out of school, 14-year-olds Phyllis Elliott from Hackney and Gladys Chambers from Clapton Park. The most senior, but far from the oldest, was 15-year-old Alice Thompson, an electric light assistant whose role was to screw together the brass and porcelain parts before packaging the lamps into a box. But that day, Alice would undertake a new job one she hadn't signed up for. As inequality at GEC wasn't just as simple as what door you walked in or who sat nearest the stove. As the temporary staff, and especially the young girls, were not given the same basic training as the men. This included the assembling of the lights, the repairing of circuits, and most important of all, fire safety. On the surface, GEC looked like a modern progressive company, but not everything was as it seemed. Fire escapes had recently been introduced to the UK from New York so they could have fitted one to the building's flat front and thin edges, or even at its unseen rear. But they didn't. It was considered an eyesore and an unnecessary expense. It's true that GEC was one of the first companies in London to fit a fire alarm system. Only two years since Pearson's had installed it, they were yet to connect it to the switchboard to the local fire station. So although the alarms would sound, no firefighters would be alerted until someone saw smoke. And that included their own fire brigade, situated just two doors away at 71 Queen Victoria Street. They were a small crew of part-time firefighters working as full-time engineers whose ancient equipment was designed to cope with fires at a time when commercial premises were three stories high, not five. 
And yes, each floor had been fitted with break glass buttons in case of emergencies. But only senior staff were trained and authorized to use them. Fire drills were held regularly, but only after hours when most of the staff had gone home. And with the fourth floor girls only being temporary staff, they weren't deemed essential enough to train. So in a company where different bells were used to communicate between different departments, with different alarms for deliveries, phone calls, tea breaks or shift changes, only those deemed important to the company knew how to differentiate between the office bells, the warehouse bells and the fire bells. As an employer, GEC was regularly assessed by the factory's inspectorate and each time they passed with flying colours. But as the fourth floor was not officially a designated workspace, it was really just a storage room repurposed for producing decorations for the king's coronation. It had no emergency signage and was the only floor in the building with no copies of the evacuation procedure on the wall. As the longest serving of the girls, 15-year-old Alice Thompson was savvy enough to eavesdrop on the men's chatter and pick up a few tidbits. So she knew about the three ladders hidden under the bench in the packing room. But she didn't know about the trap door leading from the fourth floor to the roof. And just like the other girls, Alice had neither heard of nor was informed that in a case of emergency, each floor had eight designated fire police whose job it was to ensure that the staff were evacuated. Theirs was a man called John Tyndall. But they had never met him and they had never heard of him. This was a disaster waiting to happen. And yet this wasn't even the worst. Working with Messrs Murdoch nephews to create the coronation lights, the boxed-up floral wreaths on the second floor were made of a mix of linen and wax. They were pretty, durable and waterproof. But when exposed to a naked flame, the wreaths didn't just blacken or burn like any other decoration. A single heat source would cause them to explode in a flash of brilliant white light, just like gunpowder. In that same volatile room, GEC had stored what they described as a small quantity of liquid, which was actually 76 kilos of comedine, a highly flammable and very combustible liquid. The fuel had been stocked, the touch paper had been set, and it was only a matter of time before someone would die. The day had been uneventful for the girls on the fourth floor. 
assembling the wreaths had kept them busy, and with all but a handful of men nowhere to be seen, they chatted a little louder. At roughly 5pm, a fire broke out in the second floor stockroom. Whether its ignition was caused by an electrical spark or a carelessly discarded cigarette is unknown. But nobody noticed the blaze, and the alarms wouldn't activate until someone pushed a button, having either seen a fire or smelled the smoke. So for the next 15 minutes, nothing happened, except the swelling of an angry inferno. At 5.15pm, a fire alarm was tripped, and the building echoed to the shrill of a persistent piercing bell. Trained to react, David Everson, who managed the girls, recognised the alarm and swiftly left by the stairwell, taking 14-year-old Stanley Chapman with him, but leaving the 13 girls behind. Having never heard that particular bell before, and smelling no smoke, being too afraid to leave their posts for fear of losing their badly paid jobs, the girls took a tea break and stayed on the fourth floor. With alarms ringing, four of the eight designated fire police on shift that day began to evacuate the building's 200 employees. They were methodical and calm to ensure that nobody got hurt. Only John Tyndall, whose job it was to clear the fourth floor, only made it as far as the second step up the stairs. From where he shouted, Fire! Fire! Evacuate! Only his words were lost amidst the alarms and ordered by his seniors to undertake a more vital task, he assisted in shuttling the accountancy ledgers across the street to the City and Midland Bank, putting a few books full of figures over the lives of the girls. It was a journey he would undertake three times before he realised his tragic mistake. Thankfully, There were others on duty that day who took their roles seriously. The second the alarm sounded, the 25-strong crew of GEC's own fire brigade sprang into action, being coordinated by its captain, Max Bing. Alerted towards the second-floor stockroom, Charles Frederick Tripp passed through the heavy iron double doors connecting 67 and 69, and witnessed the inferno. The second floor was the epitome of hell. As acrid air swirled with thick black smoke, which whiffed of gunpowder. Heaving waves of reddish-orange flames licked at the dark peeling walls like the devil's own lecherous tongue. And stacked boxes of wreaths exploded in white-hot flashes, making breathing impossible and the stairwell impenetrable. Even for a modestly experienced firefighter 
like Trip. Outside on Queen Victoria Street, a crowd had begun to gather. Doing his job, Captain Bing asked the lead of the fire police, is everyone accounted for? And he was told they were, but this was not true. From the street, through the rising flames, and up beyond the thickening smoke, bystanders began to scream, as at the windows of the fourth floor, the terrified faces of 13 young girls peered down. Although only 15, Alice had led the girls down the fiery stairwell towards an exit. But as they descended, being blinded by smoke, choked by fumes, and with the sizzling hot metal of every handrail and doorknob scorching their skin, they were forced to retreat back up to the fourth floor. Ironically, they had three ladders which Alice knew of, and an escape route was just a few feet away. But having never been told of the trap door leading up and out onto the roof, here they would remain. Stuck on the top floor of a flat-fronted building with no fire escapes and windows with very thin ledges. The terrified girls of the fourth floor could do nothing but rely on the firefighters. A team of courageous but badly funded and tragically equipped firefighters whose hoses only had enough pressure to pump water to the third floor, whose ladders could only reach to the second floor, and having only been partially installed by Pearsons, the alarm system wasn't connected to the switchboard, which meant that the professional firefighters were not aware of the fire. Innovation had failed, but having been notified by Captain Bing, within minutes, the professional crews of both Watling Street and Southwark fire stations were alerted, and some were already on the scene. But even that wouldn't be enough. Created and funded by an amalgam of 36 insurance companies, the Metropolitan Fire Brigade and the London Salvage Corps had what was described as a deplorable lack of equipment, with engines so old-fashioned that only a museum would be glad to get London's archaic firefighting appliances. Their ladders were also 10 feet too short. Their hoses struggled to fully extinguish the flames, and the jump sheet a 20-foot square patch of canvas designed to make a fall from a five-story building survivable. That was missing. But this didn't stop their bravery. Fighting the intense heat and smoke, one officer crawled on his belly to rescue Emily Thompson, dragging the unconscious girl up to the roof. Another called Hillman, dangled precariously from a wire, grabbing one girl from a burning window 
and lowering her to safety as the flames shot out. Calling out in the darkness and seeing the skylight begin to collapse, Officer West succeeded in rescuing 17-year-old Mabel Amos from the flames. But she was so taut with terror that having got out, the young girl died of a heart attack. With the heat and smoke becoming too intense for the firemen, they were unsure if any of the girls would survive. And with a 70-foot ladder en route from Southwark, by the time that arrived, it may be too late. With quick thinking, a bystander ripped the tarpaulin off a fruit vendor's cart, and gripped tight by two dozen firemen, they made a makeshift jump sheet. Jump! The crowds willed the girls. Jump! They called. But through the smoke, five stories high, the sheet looked no bigger than a postage stamp. The five were trapped. Four girls and a boy. As the flames licked their skin, the heat caused their clothes to combust, and the smell which stung their nostrils was the scorching of their own hair. As these children were given an impossible choice, burn to death or jump into oblivion. It takes real courage to make that kind of a life or death decision. So it's no surprise that the first to jump from the burning building was Alice. Smashing the far west window, Alice perched herself on the thin window ledge. She shut her eyes tight, and with her back to the world, she rolled backwards, as from five stories up, she disappeared into the dense smoke. Hitting the sheet dead centre and escaping with only cuts and burns, as the crowd erupted in cheers, Alice's bravery encouraged the others to follow. Nora Jones, Emmeline Ambrose and Dora Cutter all survived. Jessie Hasty jumped as her burning blouse streaked the sky like a firework, and she too was one of the lucky ones. But having fainted before she could leap, Phyllis Elliott died inside, and 21-year-old Arthur Paget, a clerk with a widowed mother, jumped but missed the sheet, and later died of his injuries. The 70-foot ladder arrived shortly afterwards and rescued those who were trapped on the roof. And with the fire extinguished within minutes, the bodies of seven young girls were later recovered from the charred remains of the building. They were Mabel Garrett, Ada Steele, Lily Amelia Mansell, Gladys Chambers, Phyllis Elliott, Violet Hodgson, and Florence Amor. An inquest was held two days later at the coroner's court in Golden Lane. 65 eyewitnesses gave their testimony, including Alice Thompson, 
who spoke eloquently through her burns, cuts, and trauma. After 12 days of testimony, the court found the London Building Act of 1894 to be inadequate. No one was found guilty of manslaughter, and although GEC admitted to negligence, a criminal trial was not requested. Except for a privately funded plaque to two of the girls, a memorial to the dead was never erected at 67 Queen Victoria Street. And although forgotten, this little-known fire helped to shape many of the innovations and processes we use today to prevent more deaths. So the next time you hear a fire alarm, forget about how this is a slight inconvenience to your busy day. Think about the tragic souls who have already given their lives to save yours. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. As always, for those of you who enjoy listening to the wibble-wobble of a tubby loser droning on about pointless shit, join me for a little quiz and some extra details about this case in Extra Mile. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Tom Gillett, Sarah Freer, and Sophie Chadwick. I thank you all. I hope you're enjoying all of the exclusive online treats, the lovely thank you card of goodies, which I hope you've received in the post, and even while Murder Mile is offline in January and February whilst I do my research, you'll still be receiving lots of goodies to keep you entertained. So for everyone else, if that sounds lovely, you can join Patreon and support the show via the link in the show notes. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. (sighs) 
Why? Oh, cripes! Oh, stretch time. Open window. Uh, unleash the sound of uh, Coot mouthing off, which he's just been doing. Got a little. I think we've got a, a, a sparrow above me, which has been going. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, hello everyone. Welcome to Extra Mile. We're here. We're back. Just going to move my uh, sound blocker out of the way. There we go. Move that. That's good. That means that means that's just so uh, it, it stops all the sound, all the extraneous sound from uh, uh, that shouldn't be on the recording coming in. It's like a little just a sound protector. And on, pot, on top, I put some household sponges. Lovely. Oh, it's very technical over here. It's it's not a very technical setup here, but you know what? It do- this is what I never understand. Sometimes, like, on a lot of these podcast forums, we see people and someone will go, hey, look at my new studio I set up. And you look at it and they've spent thousands of pounds and they've got, like, all the, the microphones on the little gimbals and, you know, all the mixing desks and all that. And you think, oh, wow, that looks amazing. You've created and the, all the soundproofing in the walls. And then you listen to their podcast and it's just like a couple of guys shouting at each other. And you just go... Why have you wasted all your money on that? Just why? Why? You can you can do it really cheaply. Podcasting doesn't need to be expensive. You just need to you just need to focus on getting the getting the sound quality right. Anyway, that was waffle. Right, let me just go and pop on my tea. I'm gonna pop on some water and then uh, I can have my cup of couple of tea. There we go, I've already filled it up. There we go. Walk door open. Oh, it's a nice might be a nice day today it's a it's a low sun because it's obviously it's winter the sun is just creeping over it's coming along the canal and because it was quite cold last night and it's been cold for the last couple of days um there's kind of a nice there's a fog on the canal so it's kind of it's not as nice as it was yesterday yesterday it was like a creeping uh kind of old london fog where you can imagine the, the, there's ghosts amongst the fog but uh today it's not it's not that not that good today. Right. Just doing coffee, gonna put two sugars in because I'm a fat bastard. Gonna put in my uh, fake milk. Uh, there we go. Kind of going off dairy a bit. I, I had a um, I went to make an egg sandwich the other day. Uh, when I opened up the egg, I went, oh that looks weird. And then I looked at it closely and it was a blood egg. It was one of those eggs where you open it up and there's there's because obviously inside eggs are blood blood vessels but one of the blood vessels when it was forming had obviously ruptured so when i opened up the egg it was pure red it was just like a pure blood and it was just like oh it's disgusting this has really put me off eggs now i normally have like one egg with my dinner because it makes for a nice adding to add it to something else but i just can't eat eggs anymore it's really creeped me out and milk as well uh what else is going on um have i said welcome to extra mile i can't remember uh, if you're new to this this is kind of it i while the while the coffee's on i have a bit of a waffle say some things uh then we'll do a quiz and then i'll fill you in on some details to do with this case all good what else is going on it's it's winter time it's we're in this weird patch at the moment where it's not it's 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 getting cold in the evenings but if I put a fire on, it'll still be too hot in the evening and I can't sleep properly. And if I don't have a fire on, it's nice. I can get wrapped up in all my blankets, but I do think to myself, but then, but then the inside of the cabin gets damp with condensation. So I'm in, we're in that twilight world of thinking, oh, bollocks, do I have the fire on or not? Last night I did a little fire and it was all right. It seemed to last. Um, 
What else is going on? Cough, water's getting hot. There we go. Yum. Good. Pop that in. Pull out cake. Uh, oh, I'll do. Oh, cool. There's a bit of a cold breeze coming in. Cool, lummy. There we go. Coming back over. Uh, picked up a cake. Unfortunately, when I get to the cake shop, because because I like I like to sit down and start working immediately as soon as I wake up. So I'm normally like laptop on. Normally, normally by the time it hits eight o'clock, I'm normally up and running. So therefore, I don't like to go out anywhere because it distracts me, and I wait until like one o'clock to have a bit of a little bit of a break. But by the time I get to the bakery, pretty much everyone's eaten everything, so there's not much left. But luckily, people don't seem to be that interested in uh, Belgian buns. So I've got a big Belgian bun, and this is. How wide is that? That's probably, probably eight inches wide. Ooh, uh, uh, yeah, it's nice. It's got lemon curd on the inside with uh, uh, sultanas. So it makes it nice. It's not as nice as over at Griselda's where they do it with the cinnamon, but it's 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 top of the list. It's a, it's a nice soft one as well. Uh, so yeah, hoping to have a diet in the new year. Um, as always, January, February, but I'm gearing up for winter. I'm going to stockpile all of my all of the crap, and I'm going to pig out over Christmas because you you've got to, haven't you? Um, got as of time of recording, got four more murder mile walks to go, which is good. Looking forward to it. Everyone's been very nice on these walks, so we're having fun. Uh, just as a reminder, again, uh, pretty much they're all sold out now. Pretty much. Um, but if you do have vouchers, this is your opportunity. The, the only reason I'm really doing these walks is to help people who've got vouchers to use them up. So um, yeah, even though the, it will say sold out, email me and I'll sort you out. But for people who want new tickets, sorry, they are they are sold out. This is this is just for people who want to use up their vouchers. Uh, nice emails. You're welcome to send one. Go, oh, please, can I be allowed on the walk? No, uh, sorry. Uh, literally is for people to use their vouchers. Uh, but there will be a new style walk in the new year, possibly spring or summer, TBC. Um, other news, uh, obviously we finally resolved it. Episode 149, Jane Andrews, part two. Finally resolved, it's now up on iTunes. It only took me two and a half weeks of screaming at iTunes and then going, oh, it's not our fault, nothing we've done. Oh, we haven't done anything wrong. <laughs> Until I pointed out, it's it works everywhere else and uh they were going oh it's your rss feed i'm like it's not my rss feed because the episode is on itunes it's just it's in the feed you just haven't put it in the the your your algorithm hasn't made it go into the library so you need to make sure that's there and they were like oh bleep blop bleep blop we haven't done that bleep blop bleep blop because sometimes with itunes you don't know whether you're talking to a human being or an algorithm so finally after two and a half weeks it is the episode is now in the library so you can listen to it you could listen to it before anyway it's just it wasn't where it should have been so it's now there uh let's hope there won't be any more fuck-ups from itunes bleep blop bleep blop you know what they're like really are a pain in the ass no no other apps out there are as pain in the arsey as them but of course uh to save yourselves what you can do uh, you can become a patron subscriber and therefore your episode not only is it early every week but also it's guaranteed to be there because i upload it myself whereas itunes and all these other uh apps and things like that i don't upload like stitcher or spreaker or whatever crap people use i don't upload it to any of your sites they basically take our rss feeds and they like spotify i never upload to spotify we i upload to acast and uh, I send it to iTunes and everyone kind of takes the feed off that. So uh, 
yeah. So, um, it, so if I was you, go to the source. A- Acast is a good app. It's all right. Um, you can use, uh, but Patreon is probably the best. There you go. Whoa. Uh, what else we got? We got four more episodes of Murder Mile to go until Christmas. Uh, as always, January, February, I will be uh, researching and hoping to get into the archives. Uh, it'd be nice if I could get into the archives, and it'd be nice if they could give me more than three hours in there, as opposed to in the old days you used to get like nine or ten. But because of COVID, it's it's a bit more difficult. Uh, anyway, right, let's do some quiz questions. Uh, get yourselves ready. You ready? Good. Um, question number one: What term was used to describe? Um, Oh, come on, Michael, read the question. I wasn't even looking at the question then. Question number one. What term was used to describe what the company did on the first two floors made? That's not even written correctly. Right. Rephrase it, Michael. The first two floors of the building, there was a company below GEC. Um, They made things. But what was it? What words did they use to describe what they made? So not floral wreaths. What words did they use to describe what they made? They were a huh, 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 manufacturer and wholesaler. Uh, question: two. I had a bit of a panic over this because normally, I, 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 what I do is I go through all the data and I create like a little bible for myself, and uh, it's everything's in an order. And then when I go to write it, I copy and paste it just below, so I have a backup copy. But when I got to this section where I do the questions, I realised I hadn't backed up that copy, so I had none of my original data, and I just went, ah, oh, shit. Uh, but I managed to salvage some data, which was really uh, lucky at the end. Uh, question two. That was really unimportant. Question two. What is the nearest murder to this location that we've covered on Murder Mile? Uh, question number three. What was Alice's job title? In the background, you can hear uh, HS2. Wonderful, very uh, affordable, value for money, HS2. And you can hear banging that goes on for horrible it's like it's like they're they are a good couple of miles away and you can hear boom boom and it just goes on for hours oh it's it's like it's like water torture it really is um don't worry it'll all be done by 2050 yay <laughs> uh question four what was the name of the douchebag who didn't evacuate the fourth floor Question five, what was the name of GEC's Chief of the Fire Brigade? Question six, uh, what is the nearest tube and railway station to GEC? Question seven, which infamous fire was half a mile away from GEC? Uh, Question eight, what percentage of British homes had electricity in 1919? Uh, question nine, which famous London house had electricity since 1884? And question 10, what is at 67 Queen Victoria Street today? Whoa. A little burpy then, a little burpy. Always get a bit burpy when I do uh, Murder Mile. So let's dive into some extra stuff on this. Um, just to say that with the with the timings on this, in order to make it fit into a kind of a half an hour narrative, I've had to move some of the the timelines around of when things happened at what time, because uh, it's hard it's hard to kind of go this happened, then we got to go back to that. Da, da, da. So I've, I've moved things around, but it hasn't changed the story, and it's kept it, it's kept the emphasis on everything right. So the the rescue of Emily Johnson. 
now uh, she had uh, she'd kind of collapsed inside the building obviously it was really hot and intense in there there was no oxygen supplies with the fire brigade who were there they didn't have oxygen supplies either really they obviously they didn't have oxygen canisters but they had a kind of a an artificial respirator but nothing that really really helped them that well so they were crawling on their hands and knees uh, one of the firefighters was u- basically using touch to find his way around the building he says he felt someone's face uh and brought the body of someone to the window um that was emily johnson he attached uh, her body to a line uh, and he said he was being careful not to squeeze the life out of her um what they managed to do was get her out on the line and then get her up to the um uh the roof because they had firefighters above with the, the the wire that we mentioned um uh, what they did was they kept her on the roof. Uh, uh, the firefighters were up there. They were on the other roof of, of the building next to them as well. Um, but when the 70-foot ladder turned up, that's when when they were able to remove Emily from the building. Uh, and she was uh, carried down on the fireman's shoulders. Uh, what else happened? The uh, So the, the, there was two lots of people there. Uh, there was obviously the... the the uh, salvage corps who was run by major fox and we've got the um metropolitan fire brigade who was uh her managed by the man whose name we can't mention because that's part of the quiz so they'd both turned up at that point our um uh, one of them had actually i didn't put this in the story but one of them had actually actually they were they were based not too far away so actually they had started to see the smoke already which is why uh, the guy who was in in charge of the uh, GEC's fire brigade was able to communicate with them really swiftly because they, they they were pretty close. Um, they were using a large coil coiled wire of rope um, that they found lying on the roof on the roof roof roof. Uh, and Hillman, who was of the Salvage Corps, went to the edge of the coping stone, uh, and he was lowered eight to ten feet until he could reach the extreme right-hand build window of the uh, burning floor. He dangled at the end of the rope. He seized one of the girls, uh, grabbed her in his arms, and then he was able to. Uh, there was enough rope to kind of lower her. Well, they lowered her down uh, to the guys who were on the ladders, who were on the second floor, because because the. Cause the the uh the 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 coiled wire that they had would go down that far but what they realized is because the flames were shooting out of the building that they could this was the only time they could really do that everyone else after that the flames were just too intense the heat it was like they they couldn't get people down anymore they had to take people up and that's kind of a problem because now you've got people stuck on the roof uh what else we got mabel amos a bit of a bit of a sad one so uh an officer called west uh uh, he located her uh he said uh she was there her legs were entangled with another one uh who had either fainted or succumbed to the smoke um uh he was there with another officer called tudor roberts uh, hang on, I'll just go through my, my details. Uh, unfortunately, because uh, I'm trying to salvage these details from last night, going, oh, where's my old details? Because obviously when you have news articles, they just they just kind of, they just splurge it out in a kind of way that suits them. But I like to put everything in an order. So I like to take pieces from different articles and different sources and then turn them into a story. Um, um, yeah, they managed to get her out of the building as well um 
when he went into the building, he said there was flames everywhere. He was the the one who we got this description inside. He said the skylight was beginning to uh, collapse. There was fire everywhere. Everyone was having to crawl through their hands and knees. He managed to find her. Um, uh, she was still alive. Uh, they got her out of the building, and they uh, initially they thought she was dead, and they managed to get her down to the street. Um, uh, when they placed her on the the pavement, uh, one of the doctors who was there, what was his name? I think his name Dr. Bino. Uh, good name. Uh, he was there. He immediately started to uh, give her a resuscitation. He administered strychnine. Um, as we know, that is a poison, uh, and it is still a poison, but back in that day, they believed uh, that strychnine was something that would... Uh, kind of re- regenerate the heart uh, there were also two nurses who there they were fetched and they'd began artificial respiration not the respiration that we do today there's obviously a different kind of respiration which wasn't as effective uh unfortunately uh uh mabel amos died of suspected heart failure uh she was only only quite young it, it was said in court that she died of a weak heart but you know uh she has just been administered strychnine so we don't know we don't know what we, why she really died uh <coughs> they said that she probably died of suffocation uh she had been in the building she'd um been in there for generally they they said they said it was more than five minutes and they said that five minutes inside a smoky building is generally ju- judged to be potentially uh fatal as mentioned in the episode the jump sheet uh was missing the five because the fire brigades were kind of these ones were kind of owned by insurance companies obviously they were dictated to by what they could do by uh what the insurance companies provide because they provided the money and as you can appreciate what they cared about was buildings not catching fire contents not burning they hadn't really got a primary focus on uh saving people therefore they had a jump sheet um so people could kind of jump out of buildings and survive, which many of them did, but they didn't know where their jump sheet was that day because it wasn't it wasn't key key equipment for them. Um, luckily, there was a, a bystander, as mentioned, who uh, went to a fruit merchant's cart that was nearby, ripped that off, and they used that as a jump sheet. So that was that was a genius bit of quick thinking, not by the fireman, but by a bystander. Although I have to say, when you read read the accounts of this. Given the fact that the the firemen and many of them weren't professionals as well, many of them did some absolutely amazing and brave things just to, to save people's life. Um, so the distance from the top floor to the street level was roughly uh, seventy feet, which is twenty one meters. Um, so if you if you think about that, you're standing on a, a fifth floor building and looking down. Christ, that would be terrifying. Even jumping from a first floor onto a onto a sheet, you'd be shitting your pants. But yeah, this is uh, pretty big, pretty big. Um, uh, so yeah, jumping from that distance, which, which is, and um, we'll get to some. So, uh, Nora Jones, Emmeline Ambrose, and Dora Cutter all jumped. They managed to survive, which was great. The heat inside was intense. There was smoke burning into their eyes. They couldn't breathe. It, it got to the point where they'd either stay inside and die, or they had, they literally had to jump. And thank God, Alice was there, and uh, she kind of showed showed the girls what to do she survived they they kind of took her lead from there 
Um, so she opened the window. Well, different accounts say she either opened or kicked open the window. The, the, the glass was missing or that it could have just broke because of the heat. Uh, she opened the window near St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, which caused smoke to enter the room. Ignoring calls from others to shut the window, Alice climbed onto the ledge. It was only a really small leg ledge. Uh, she saw the tarpaulin held by the members of the fire brigade, the police and other bystanders. Um, from her perch, uh, she realised that jumping was only the best option. Uh, she she turned into the room, she sat on the ledge and she rolled out backwards, uh, which is a hell of a way to do it. Uh, but obviously, you know, she doesn't want to look at what she's going into. She'd rather just go fucking go backwards um she said she couldn't remember much else before being revived at st bart's hospital which is just around the corner uh she had a bruise to her head and ear she'd hurt her eye and her back and she was still aching when she delivered her testimony at the coroner's court um uh, she was taken away by a stretcher uh and around the same time uh, cecil jones uh, who was one of her colleagues who was there, he emerged. He'd uh, escaped uh, via the uh, trapdoor in the roof. Um, I didn't put this into the story, but uh, Cecil, who was up there, um, he went round to try and find a way out as well, and he bumped into someone who was uh, one of the accountants or something who was on one of the lower floors. And one of the accountants was like, you, oh, there's no way out. You need to go through the, um, the, the trapdoors at the top which they did because there's obviously these are different buildings so uh they were able to do that but unfortunately the girls didn't there is an account in there where one of the guys who was in there that particular accountant went to the girls and said girls you need to go through this trapdoor this is what he said but apparently because they're of different hierarchies and different orders they they didn't talk to him or they didn't know that they were allowed to communicate with him there seems to be some kind of bit of a breakdown of um uh, communication there so whether that happened or whether it didn't happen we don't know um as mentioned not everyone was lucky when they jumped uh of the of those first few girls who jumped out um pretty much most of them uh survived and did can you hear that that is hs2 that's so annoying that goes on all day I feel sorry for the people around here because some people have bought there's some lovely houses around here and they bought some really nice houses and they're like and HS2 I hate to drag, drone on about HS2 but what they've done when you look at the map there's round here is some really nice kind of nature reserves and areas like that and they've cut through all of the nice fields and the nature reserves but conveniently they've in some areas they've dodged around golf courses so I'm not saying that this is kind of biased between the, the kind of the people in the councils who are like running the council who are obviously golf players, but nature reserves, fuck it, golf courses don't touch. It's a bit bullshitty. It's bullshit. For a train line that's just gets you to what, Birmingham 20 minutes faster and Manchester a little bit quicker, who gives a shit? Who gives a shit? They're going to make quicker trains anyway. So oh, it's just bollocks. Anyway. Uh, of the <laughs> HS bloody two waste of money. Well, at least it g gave some people a job for a couple of years. Um, so uh, the, 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 the people jumping and surviving. So Jessie Hasty, as mentioned, uh, her 
some of her clothes had started to sp- uh, spontaneously combust. Obviously, they're, they're made of certain materials and the heat was there. And she was, body was getting so hot that her clothes were starting to catch fire. So she had to take off her blouse. She was holding it behind her uh, as, she, as she was about to jump. Um, Phyllis Elliott, unfortunately, as mentioned, uh, she was getting ready on the windowsill to jump. But because of the heat, she passed out. Uh, and she didn't pass out forwards. If she would have done, she probably would have survived if, if, if they were there. Unfortunately, she passed out backwards and she died inside the building. Um, rather than jump, Dora Cutter leaned forwards and then and then somersaulted out of the window. Uh, um, having wrapped a surge lunch bag around her face to protect it from the flames which is a genius idea laura uh burnt her face on the on the descent though um uh some of the people who were jumping from the building were already on fire and it was said that their skin was starting to peel off um we have details about some of the girls i did some kind of background research on them so uh phyllis caroline m elliott was age 14 of daubney road in clapton parking hackney and she was the eldest of four um Jesse Georgina Hasty was 15 of Brunswick Road in uh, Camberwell. Um, Arthur Vernon Paget, aged 21, was a clerk of Queen's Road in Edmonton. He lived with his widowed mother and was the eldest of four siblings. Uh, as mentioned in the episode, he jumped, but unfortunately he missed the tarpaulin and he hit the road. Uh, he died later of his injuries. Uh, the others who died inside the building were... Uh, just having a slurp of coffee... Uh, Mabel Garrett, age 16, of 43 uh, Linnell Road, Camberwell. She was the middle child of seven. Ada Steele, age 15, of Desmond Terrace, East Ham. She was the middle child of eight. Uh, Lily Amelia Mansell, age 16, of 29 Cowley Road in Brixton. She was one of eight. Mabel Amos, age 17, of Clapham. Um, she was the one, as mentioned, who died of um, heart attack, having been rescued. Uh, Gladys Chambers, 14 years old, uh, of Ashenden Road in Clapton Park, <laughs> Violet Hodgson, age 18, of Lower Park Road in Peckham, and Florence Amor, age 18, of Hampton Road in Forest Gate. Um, there were uh, doctors and nurses who arrived on the scene. Uh, there were many people nearby who'd been trained by St John's Ambulance, so they were able to be there to provide uh artificial resuscitation St Bart's Hospital uh, was only about half a mile away which is roughly eight minutes in a court so a lot in a cart so a lot of people who had uh, kind of carts and uh, there wasn't really that many cars around that point but you know there was enough people with carts who were able to ship them back and forth Um, passing nearby was Dr Hudson who was a qualified physician Uh, he was one of the first guys who turned up and kind of recognised that there's fire coming out, and he kind of was like, fire, fire. Uh, he ordered some stimulants, a bottle of brandy being obtained by the nearby Skinner's Arms. Uh, he subsequently ordered a police officer to accompany the injured to some uh, Bart's hospital and continue to make himself useful. Uh, uh, there was uh, Edward Love, uh, Flower Day uh, of St John's Ambulance. He was there. He was kind of teaching people how to do uh, artificial respiration while he was there. Uh, and they were employing the Dr. Sylvester's technique. Hi. Uh, as mentioned about the, 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 the ladders. So they turned up and they only had a 50 foot ladder, which only made it as far as the. Just going to switch off an unnecessary light. And another unnecessary light. When I started, it was dark. So now it's morning and there's lots of bright lights. Um, 
As mentioned at the start, all the fire crews, especially GECs, only had a 50-foot ladder, which went up to the third floor. And what they needed was the 70-foot ladders. Uh, unfortunately, uh, none of them seemed to have them with them or had them at all. Uh, I'm guessing that they probably didn't have them with them that day. The crews who did were the crew from Southwark, which is South London, and they were en route, but they were kind of on a, on a kind of a steamboat on their way over. Uh, so that that's why it took a little while to turn up. Um... Yeah. As mentioned, when, when the, they finally did get the proper equipment turning up, they were able to extinguish the entire fire in 20 minutes. Uh, they had a, quite a few crews. There were three, four different c- crews there in the end. Uh, so they were able to uh, get rid of all the fires. What else have we got? Uh, just having a look at just what they said when they got to some Bart's. Um, yeah, mostly, mostly bruises. Uh, lots of... Um, bruises so mostly burns lots of people with hair missing lots of people badly singed um uh clothing on all the bodies and around the waists uh had been burnt as well so there were many kind of uh uh fibers that had actually burned to people's skin so that was kind of a um quite nasty uh in total as mentioned 10 people died in the fire most of smoke asphyxiation but uh two as mentioned were um died outside one with arthur paget who died of his injuries missing the jump sheet and mabel amos who died of well they say weak heart or heart failure but uh, tbc um in total uh nine young women died uh all between the ages of 14 and 18 uh as you can see uh only one man died uh and uh of the so of the 200 people who were there pretty much it was just all the girls all the temporary workers all the were the ones that people just didn't give a shit about who were working upstairs and who no one really talked to and that was the real problem with it uh what else the inquest uh as mentioned the inquest was held at the coroner's court in golden lane up in barbican uh led by frederick joseph waldo the coroner for the city uh, and that was held within two days of fire. Um, it was. It took 12 days in total. There were 65 witnesses to the fire, um, 25 employees of GEC, another 13 represented by the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, and 12 eyewitnesses, as well as policemen, district surveyors, factory inspectorate, medical practitioners. Uh, there's some others as well. Um yeah, it uh, went on from the 12th of June to the 29th of July. Uh, these were the findings. They said that the London Building Act of 1894 was inadequate. They recommended that the provisions should be retrospectively applied to existing buildings. Uh, they said exits to the roof would have provided a safe way for those to the fo- top floor to escape, but law- the law requiring amending the law to give the LCC, which is the London County Council Authority, to enforce such changes to buildings were predated uh, in the 1894 Act. So this is kind of the, the council being given more authority to turn around to buildings go- going, this is what you have to do, as opposed to you doing what you think is right. Um Although an electric fire alarm had been installed in the premises, notice of the fire was sent unnecessarily late to the brigade, i.e. they'd got a system set up, but it wasn't connected to the fire brigade. Uh, so even though the, their own fire brigade were able to be there within within seconds, the, the 
professionals weren't informed of this. Uh, iron doors, uh, which might well have been regarded as safe, were found to be illegal. So I didn't put this in the story because it slowed it down. But basically, between each of the premises were uh, fire doors. Um, and these were heavy iron doors to make sure that people couldn't break in. But it was also kind of fire doors as well. But the problem is they were all locked. So when the, some of the fire brigade came through, they were able to go between each building because they had keys to go from 67 to 69, blah, 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 like that. But uh, the girls, when they went down, they went down to the floors and they found one of the fire doors and they went to push it. But the fire door was locked. They'd already been locked. Um, and fortunately... Uh, one of the one of the fire officers uh, was there. He went down. And when they went into one of the the side, one of the other buildings, they went in, and they realised it was dangerous there. So they locked one of the fire doors. And apparently, after that, Alice and the girls tried to get through those doors, but they had already been locked. So you know, if one of those doors had been left open, they probably would have been saved. But don't forget, this is about saving property and content. So what they were trying to do also was to stop the fire spreading to the next building as well and causing more problems for other people so uh, other other businesses um in terms of whether gec's offices were a warehouse or a factory according to the factory acts was a borderline issue which the company's board disputed in its annual shareholder meeting that's always something that you love to hear about when people are talking about uh, people dying and then they, they mention shareholders that always seems to be important doesn't it it's uh it's like it's like the environment, you know, the, all the GEC stuff that's going. Uh, GEC, so I'm thinking about G uh, or uh, um, the climate change uh, thing that's going on in Glasgow at the moment, and they're all they're all making these decisions about what we need to do by this date. But you know, it's not going to happen. Why? Because big business, unless we get to the point where big business knows that they can make a shit ton of money off the environment, they're not interested. It's like we've already had all of all of these companies going, oh, we're going to lose all our money. This is how we make our money, 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 money. It's what they're focused on. But the second that kind of all the bigwigs go, hang on, actually, you know, we've, we've got a way that we can make a fortune out of this. Suddenly they will get off their fat asses and do it. But they won't. And by then it'll be too late. <sighs> That's cheerful, wasn't it? Uh, the King, King Edward's coronation uh, was on the 26th of June 1902. So that was... Two, just two weeks later uh, that still went ahead if you look at the photos of the coronation you'll see lots of uh, street decorations above the streets uh, they were all electric and illuminated to kind of symbolize the fact that we'd gone from the victoria era to the edwardian era which was kind of a uh, seen as a modern progression um, they were all made by uh, gec and the guys who were working uh, on the second floor uh, those are the uh, floral wreaths and the lights that were created by them. Uh, what else is in there? I think that's it. I think that's it. Yeah, I think in in some of the cases they um, uh, in some of the inquests they said that some members uh, appeared unwilling to take measures above their rank. That seemed to be a, a thing, and there seemed to be a "not my place to offer assistance" kind of attitude. Uh, uh, it was clear that the men employed on this floor did very little to assist the young women. In fact, in a lot of the newspapers, this was kind of picked up quite quite rightly by a lot of newspapers, really taking the piss and, uh, and saying, why is it that there were brave men in there? And they did, abs they did absolutely nothing to save these girls. In fact, they didn't even talk to them. They didn't even deem themselves w the girls worthy enough to be talked at. 
just so they could save their lives. Um, as mentioned in the story, there was um, two girls, Lily Mansell and uh, Mabel Amos, were interred in one grave at Norwood Cemetery. Um, they were both friends anyway, so that kind of made sense to her, kind of have them buried together. Also for their families, it's cheaper as well. Uh, there was... Um, uh, mem- representatives of, of the General Electric Company were also present. Um, both coffins were covered with wreaths sent by relations, uh, private friends, uh, and chairman and directors of the General Electric Company. Uh, there is, um, there is a uh, there's a memorial to I believe it's to Mabel and. Uh, Mabel Garrett and Violet. Uh, they, oh, they were buried in the same grave as well. Oh, where is this memorial? Um, I've. Oh, here he is. Oh, is is this it? Come on, Michael. Oh, here we go. Uh, the only known memorial was the dedication of a stained glass window placed in St. St. Paul's Church in Homerton to the memory of the two 14-year-old victims of the fire, um, Phyllis Elliot and Gladys Chambers. Um, it's still there today so you can go in there and look at that but uh, and that was paid for by the public Um, and I believe there was a kind of a subscription set up by a local newspaper as well Uh, so that's the only memorial and that was that was organized by locals Um, and that's it that's that story Uh, very sad one very sad one Uh, let's go do the the quiz and then I can start editing this and eating my cake. Oh, Michael, 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 go have a slurp of coffee. Right, let's do the quiz questions. Don't forget, as always, some of these may be in the episode, some of these may not, because I haven't edited the episode by the time you're listening to this. Well, by the time you're listening to this, I have edited the episode, but... um hang on does that make sense when you're listening to this i have listened the the thing you've just listened to i yet haven't edited that right because i literally record the first bit and then i record the second bit obviously the next bit the bit that you just listened to that takes a couple of days to edit so uh i haven't done that bit yet so i don't know what's going to be in that episode um but you can find out by uh, subscribing to patreon and you get walk with me and walk with me is the the series that i record after i've edited and i let you into all the little secrets that go into the episode like how was the music made in last week's episode the uh blind obsession oh see that doesn't make it into extra mile at all but that's secret there's always little secrets that i sneak in so uh question number one what term was used oh, i have to rephrase this one what term was used by the company that worked on the first two floors about what they made they described it as fancy goods you have to learn to write better questions question two what is the nearest murder to this location that we've covered on murder mile it was god's banker uh, about roberto calvi that's an interesting one a very weird bizarre story question three what was alice's job title she was an electric light assistant uh looking at the census as well uh, she was a uh, full title was uh, electric light warehouse assistant uh she had an older sister who also worked there who had the, who had the same job title as well so her sister worked there but her sister either wasn't working there that day 
Ah, uh, we're not too sure. But she doesn't seem to have been involved. Uh, maybe she was in a different part of the building. Uh, question four. What was the name of the douchebag who didn't evacuate the fourth floor? His name was John Tyndall. There you go. Everyone has their 15 minutes of fame, and that is yours, John Tyndall. You will be remembered for not evacuating the girls on the fourth floor and potentially uh, assisting their death. Although, uh, looking at it, he doesn't seem to have been a senior person, and he clearly is kind of being guided by the seniors who were there, who told him to go and collect the uh, ledgers from the accountancy, the accountancy department because they considered that more important than saving people's lives. So really... They should have been strung up as well. Uh, question five. It looks like he was probably a bit of a get scapegoat there. Uh, although what he did was not particularly good. Uh, question five. What was the name of GEC's chief of the fire brigade? It was Captain Max Bing. Uh, question six. What is the nearest tube and railway station to GEC? It is Mansion House. Question seven. Which infamous fire was half a mile away from GEC? Come on, everyone should get this one. It was uh, the 1666 Great Fire of London. I have to say it's that one because, don't forget, there's at least three Great Fires of London and everyone seems to say the Great Fire of London, whereas you, what you have to say is the 1666 Great Fire of London because there's three. It's like saying, oh, the, uh, uh, the plague outbreak. And everyone goes, so what, 1665? And you go, yeah, but don't forget, there's been about 10 in London. Uh, and some of them some of them were really horrific as well. Uh, question eight. What percentage of British homes had electricity by 1919? It was just 6%. Uh, with uh, They hadn't kind of uh, nationalised the uh, electricity companies until 1926. So that was... That was when thing, people actually started to get electricity. Even if you look in the Ginger Ray story, which is 1948, even then she's still using gas for lighting and heating as well. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's 1940s. And even with some of the Reg Christie stuff as well, that's, that's gas lighting as well. So uh, question number nine, which famous London house had had electric lighting since 1884? It was Buckingham Palace. L lovely Princess Kate, says Police Constable Arsenal Guinness. In between pints. And question 10. What is at 67 Queen Victoria Street today? It is an office space and a Sainsbury's local. There we go. That's that done. Oh, that was quite a long one. Sorry about that. OK, uh, that's me done. Hope you enjoyed that. We will do another one next week, four more episodes, and then we've got Christmas, and then we can all rest. Have yourself a good week. Stay safe. Be good. Lots of love. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 